Next Chapter Podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Gang, gang, get a That's Eric Clapton on Mainline, Florida. Mainline, Florida. Let me tell you something. So we've been doing this. So is we're at this four eleven. So that's that is. God, I'm so bad with math. Eighty nine episodes. And in eighty nine episodes, I don't know if I've ever had a song just fucking hit me in the side of the face. Knock a tooth out, make me all oh man, all wangzuki in the head, and then and then just I don't know what I'm saying. All I know is it's one of the best songs I've heard since I've started doing this podcast. So it's called Mainline Florida. It's by Eric Clapton, off of his 1974 solo record, 461 Ocean Boulevard. And like I said, it's 411 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, Fleece Army? Please tell me you're listening to this music. Pay for your Spotify. Pay for your title. Pay for your Apple Music. Pay for however way that you can listen to these records and join us on this journey through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums. Also, show us that you're listening to the podcast. I want you guys to take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500 Post it on your Instagram stories. Tag us at the 500 podcast. Tag me at Josh Adam Myers. Tag my guest. If it's this episode, whoever the guest is, if it's Satriani, if it's Mike Watt, if it's Ryan Sickler, if it's any of my homies, tag them as well. We'll repost it. We're trying to spread the word, trying to get the numbers up, trying, and we're doing pretty good at it. If you guys are listening on Apple podcasts, I fucking mean it. Leave a review, please. All right, so I've, I've already talked too much. And you're here for the music. You're here for the guests. We have an incredible guest. I haven't said his... Actually, I did say his name, but who cares? What I do know is that this is a Dougal record. It's released on July 1974 on RSO Records. It was produced by Tom Dowd. And it's the second solo album studio by British rock guitar god Eric Clapton. All right, I'm not going to go over his whole story. Basically, he's born in 1945 to a 16-year-old British mom and a 25-year-old Canadian soldier who went off to war before Eric was born and then moved back to Canada. So you guys have to understand this about Eric. Everything that I know that has affected his music is that he was a motherless child. So he's raised by his grandparents, and he was led to believe that his mother 
was his older sister. So if you're wondering why he's going to have these drug problems that we're about to talk about, it's right fucking there. He got a cheap acoustic guitar when he was 13, but he found the passion for blues music. He went to art school, got kicked out for caring too much about music, and by 16, he was already getting noticed for his blues guitar playing. He's busking around England in 1962, and he formed a duo, and then joined a few bands before joining the Yardbirds in 63. They do some shit, but Eric is a blues purist, so he quits the band. He joins John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, plays with them until about 66, then he forms the supergroup Cream with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. Then in 1967, he becomes friends with Jimi Hendrix. That influences guitar playing style, becomes more flamboyant, more psychedelic. Cream blows up, makes him a household name, finally in America. He goes on to form the supergroup Blind Faith. Then he does his first self-titled solo record in 1970. He wanted to play down his guitar god status and prove that he didn't need to be in the spotlight. Then he goes on to do George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. He puts together Derek and the Dominoes with Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers. They make one record. They try to make another one, but Eric is too fucked up. Clapton has a sizable heroin addiction, an alcohol addiction, and after a horribly drug-fueled tour, Derek and the Dominoes can't seem to put together another record. And shortly after that, Dwayne Allman was killed in a motorcycle accident in 1971. And that put Eric in a spiral of grief, drug addiction, depression, and the agony of the unrequited love and affection from his friend's wife. Because, dude, Eric Clapton was in love with Patty, George Harrison's wife. Jesus Christ. Is this is this Maury Povich? Nope, it's Eric Clapton's life. So what's he do? He goes on a three-year heroin binge and career hiatus. Which I'm not going to lie... Doesn't sound horrible. You know what I mean? Bunch of dope, chilling, getting fat. All right, don't listen to me, people. I'm, I'm <laughs> unless you are, and then, I mean, that's on you. But like I've said a million times on this podcast, try fentanyl once. When he emerged in 1974, he had kicked heroin, is living with Patty Boyd, and was ready to make another record. After hearing Derek and the Domino's bassist Carl Rattle's demos with drummer Jamie Oldacker and keyboardist Dick Sims, Clapton had found his band. Clapton added guitarist George Terry, vocalist Yvonne Elliman, and additional keyboardist Albie Galutin, and went back to Miami with Tom Dowd. Clapton's manager and record company owner Robert Stigwood rented him the house at 461 Ocean Boulevard to live at while recording. The album only had three Clapton originals as most of it was reworked blues songs and other covers. While some critics thought the album sounded too soft and safe, it was a worldwide success and relaunched his solo career. Since then, he sold over 100 million records, won 18 Grammys and numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards, and he still comes in as one of the most influential and important guitarists in rock and roll history. To this day, he is the only three-time member in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the Yardbirds, Cream, and his solo shit. And my guest today, I mean, this guy should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the one and only Joe Satriani. 
Joe is one of the most badass rock and roll guitarists I have ever heard in my life. The dude has sold over 10 million albums. He's been nominated for 15 Grammys. He's toured with Deep Purple, Mick Jagger. He formed the rock supergroup Chickenfoot. And he's also taught Kurt Hammett and Steve Vai because he's one of the greatest guitar teachers in the history of the universe. And he just put out his 18th studio album, Shape Shifting, earlier this year in April and was going to be touring worldwide, but I don't know if you guys heard, there's this whole thing called COVID and it's shutting everything down. Guys, this is a fun one. We have a guitar God for a guitar God. You're welcome. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 wherever you listen to it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us five stars and leave a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, the 500 Podcast with Jam, and the 500 Podcast fan page where Evan is going to be asking you guys questions like, hey, man, if you guys have questions for our guests about certain records, we want you guys to post them on the Facebook fan page. Get involved, man. I want to know your opinions about these records. Go on the fucking Facebook page and leave your fucking opinion. It's for all of us. For all things 500, guys, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be so angry. Go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, there's nothing left to say, but uh, here we go. With number 411 out of 500, with 461 Ocean Boulevard by Eric Clapton. Joe Satriani, Dude, I know you appreciate it, especially when I went with the shaka doom, but you can do shaka. I was just starting to clap along. It's great. Um, First of all, this is so cool to ha- be have an album that is a guitar god and have the guest be a guitar god. So <laughs> thank you for taking time out uh, from jamming, taking time out from your quarantine, whatever you're doing right now, writing music. I, I appreciate this because we were thinking of who to get to talk about Eric Clapton and your name came up so much. So do me a favor and just tell me like your history with Eric Clapton. Oh, well, um, this, uh, it's funny. Uh, I'm the youngest of five kids, right? So, uh, in the sixties, when I'm a little kid growing up, my older siblings are living the sixties a hundred percent. The house is just crazy, social upheaval, uh, crazy, uh, boyfriends. My sisters are bringing over all the time and they keep, uh, bringing these albums over and they know that I'm a little drummer. I'm a little kid, but I'm just like crazy about uh, playing Beatles and Stones and stuff like that. And uh, But I'm not a good drummer, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> I'm a crazy little drummer. And so they, they keep testing me. You know, they, they go, hey, Joey, come on over here. Listen to this, you know. And uh, I get introduced into this unbelievable music that is being created by cream and hendrix and the who uh and of course it's all wrapped up in everything that's happening in the late 60s so there's a lot of james brown in the house there's a lot of motown in the house there's still all the 50s rock and roll that's playing my parents are playing jazz all the time 
very musical house, you know. Um, but that's where I first hear Eric Clapton. That's where I hear Cream. Uh, the, and, you know, they they lay on uh, – after I tell them I hear something weird on the radio one day, they show up with a Jimi Hendrix record and they say, you like this guy? And I'm like, this guy's like the greatest, you know. And so – that beginning, that that period there, the last few years of the 60s decade was me getting into the music of my older siblings. And, you know, a lot of that, you stand there by the record player with your guitar and you don't really do much because you, you don't know what's going on. You know, you just go like, how does he do that? How does it sound so good? The, for one of the early memories I had about Eric Clapton was just – how beautiful it sounded from the beginning to the end of the piece. And not every guitar player did that. You know, there are some, you know, older styles of music, you know, like Les Paul or West Montgomery, you know, beautiful from beginning to end. But rock music was totally different. Rock music, part of the, it seemed to me as a young kid, part of the uh, formula was that everybody in the band had a crash and burn at some point. You know, the drummer would get so excited, he'd go into a fill. It wouldn't quite work out, but it was the attitude that you loved. You know, it was that sort of garage band thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, Louie Louie is a good example of that. It's, it's the trashiest recording out of time, out of tune, but it's the most beautiful thing ever. Yes, right? it's so catchy. It's so rock and roll. It's so rock and roll, right? But now Clapton comes along and he's just a little bit more together. And, I, and as the years went by, I associated it with a British thing. Cause I thought, well, got a lot of these amazing American guitar players that these British guys are emulating, but how come when the British guys do it, they kind of take one step back from the edge of the cliff to make sure they can get from the beginning to the end of the song and never show what they can't do. <laughs> they never, they never do the thing, you know, and, and Hendrix used to do that. He would just go as far as he could go. Uh, and I'd have to say breaking the rules Jeff Beck would do the same thing. He'd just stop playing. He'd just do the craziest stuff and then he'd stop and wait and then come back in. But Eric would like start and he'd just entertain you and keep you going. You never worried yeah. about Eric when he was playing. You know what I mean? And I think normal people, not people like me, <laughs> guitar crazed idiots, uh, you know, they love that. They responded to it. They maybe they can't intellectualize about it, but I could tell just by observing my older siblings that that was something that uh, they were attracted to, whatever that quality was that they maybe didn't have a name for. Uh, he had that, you know, and and this is interesting because it relates yeah. to the album that we're going to be talking about in a really big way, because it was a kind of a departure of that quality that. Uh, was so important to me when I was growing up and I was listening to him. You know, when you're listening to Sunshine of Your Love, it's like so together. It's so modern for its time. The story behind it's really great. And, uh, and, and everything that was sort of going through his mind at the time, if you read his book, I don't know, have you guys read his book? I have not, but I watched I watched Slow Hand two nights ago, the documentary on YouTube, because okay. I wanted to make sure. Dude, you have to understand, Joe, for me, I know Clapton as I know Layla, I know Cocaine, I know, you know, uh, Tears, Tears in Heaven. Oh, I know right. all of that, but I've never done. And of course, I know some of the Cream stuff and Derek and the Dominoes. But this is like my first record ever diving into 
Clapton. And this is okay. like not just Clapton like before, because what you were saying is so true is that that this dude has so many layers. You have the <laughs> Yardbird sound, you have the Cream sound, you have the Blind Faith sound, the Derek and the Dominoes, and now you have his solo shit. And the one underlying through line is that it's just blues, but it's Clapton's interpretation of what I think he's taking from the greats of mm-hmm. yesteryear that he learned from into yeah. then what he's doing and where music is going. So, yeah. I mean, I completely understand what you're saying. It's like, this is a total departure from everything he had done previously. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty remarkable uh, in the book. You know, he really shines a light on uh, his personal life, obviously. Um, and you really gather uh, from reading chapter after chapter that he's been um responding to challenges in life in unique ways. And he's got his guitar and he can play and he can sing. And so he brings that with him, you know, this this sort of baggage of his life is just responsible for each one of these choices as, as he goes along and makes these albums. Um, And uh, I think uh, in the earlier days, you know, it's typical for musicians to, um, to, you know, gather up all their strength and to always put their strongest foot forward, you know, but then as an artist gets accepted and like Clapton is, you know, called God, you know, there's a bit of a recoil. And so th- this record is a document of that recoil in a big way, you know, I mean, in a huge way. So for me, I I see, you know, the former Clapton as this big, bold, strong, assertive guitar player. Yeah. And then... You know, then the seventies come and it's a whole different ball game that happens. And he shows us a, a completely different side of not only his musicianship, but his personal side, you know, what's it like hearing this for the first time then, because you're coming off of the most badassery of badassery <laughs> Clapton, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. cream dude. I, I like, I feel like such a fucking idiot because yesterday I was like, I got to dig into more Clapton and I put on cream and mm. I was like, holy shit dude like why is this finally coming into my life now so what's this like for you to get this new version of clapton you know at at how old are you when you first dig into 461 i'm I'm thinking uh i was uh turning 18 yeah dude um and and the you know when we listen to music when music comes into our lives it is tied to our life it's a soundtrack to the what whatever it is we're doing you know one million percent yes you know so so when this record comes out what actually is happening to me is i graduate uh call uh, high school early i i was one of those kids that the the principal would love to see me leave the school you know and so me and about six other kids figure out that if we take two classes a day we can graduate in january so that's what we did nice so uh I, I graduate early. I skip graduation ceremony. I get in a car with one of my sisters and her husband, and we drive from New York to California, and we land in Marin County. And I hang out with my other sister and uh, her husband uh, in, uh, where was it? Um, San Anselmo, in the, in the hills of San Anselmo. I mean, you can imagine a kid from Long Island suddenly there in the 70s in San Anselmo. It was just all, it was so California. It was just blowing my mind every day. Yeah. Oh my God. That's like the most California <laughs> thing in the world. Like, I think that's where like 
There's like Reagan hangs out there, Schwarzenegger, the Mambas and the Papas, any California. <laughs> California raisins are up there. I never saw any of them, that's for sure. <laughs> that was just a lot of weed and music. And yeah, I had man. my guitar with me. I think I had my Telecaster with me. Uh, and uh, I didn't do much. I didn't know anybody. And uh, there's not really a scene in San Anselmo. There's just a lot of houses and, you know, it's it's a – somewhere between well it's marin county so but i loved it it was for me to get out of long island at that point in my life was great and who's on the radio but eric clapton doing i shot the sheriff and so of course uh my sister gets the album and they're playing the album all the time so that that record to me is me being you know turning 18 uh being in california for the first time doing absolutely nothing with none of my friends, just playing guitar every day, having a great time thinking I'm finally growing up. This is the world and, you know, everything's possible. Yeah. Uh, and I'm listening to this stuff by Clapton, which is so totally different because I'm thinking, really, politician, crossroads, sunshine of your love? It's just like, doesn't even sound like Layla, you know, it's just, I don't know what it sounds like, you know. It's so completely different. And But it was... I kind of filed it as this aesthetic of these of this older generation. They're obviously I've been watching them since I'm a the youngest kid in the family. I'm I'm always watching the older generation and what they're going through and thinking, what the hell are they doing? You know, <laughs> what that's like. They're it's like a a little foreshadow of the the future is what my older siblings are going through. And I'm learning from them and and listening to their discussions, political and creative and all kinds of stuff like that. So uh, that that uh, that memory of that album is all wrapped up in those memories of of uh, just getting out of high school and going to California. You know what? I have a very similar experience, and and mine wasn't going to California. Mine was being 18, going to Long Island to visit my cousins. And listening to Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba uh, did not influence me. You remember that song? It was like, I get knocked down, but I believe I do. Yeah. So I, that, that made me, and that was that didn't inspire me at all. But uh, <laughs> So not similar, but similar. Now let's, let's dive into the record because this is, okay. like I said, man, this is for me, wow, it's like, I, I've just, I, Joe, I can't tell you just how excited I was to to not just listen to this Clapton record, um, but like really dig into the other stuff, like I was saying. And I'm almost sad uh, when we we record the episode with the guest because now I know I have to move on to something else and not to shit on Bob Dylan at all because Bob <laughs> Dylan's next, but it's just not as fun as this. Uh, this is a fun record and and it just even from the start so to give it the shout that it deserves just so everybody knows it was released july of 1974 on rso records produced by tom dowd and this is clapton's second solo studio album and he opens it with motherless child which is a cover of a blind willie johnson song from 1927 called mother's child have a hard time uh peter play the intro when that shit kicks in dude The slide is, is, this is a term the kids are using. I'm going to pick it up now. It's slapping. 
The slide <laughs> is slapping. The shuffle drums are on point too. So I want to give a big shout out to Jamie Old Dacker. He's the man. Uh, and it's just, so this is like, in a sense, dude, the first non-hit song by Clapton I ever heard. Uh-huh. So, so what do you, what you're, so you're 18 years old. You're in, I, want, I keep wanting to say Salsalito because my producer's there, but you're in Marin County. Like what, like what do you, what, what's going through your, 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 your system at that moment? Well, uh, okay. So there's good and bad, my reactions to it. First of all, the, the bad part is that, you know, it's like, well, you know, that's not sunshine of your love. That's not Crossroads Live. You know, it's not sure. Cream. And uh, and uh, I, I, I was thinking like, well, okay, all the records that he put out, it's not Blind Faith. I loved Blind Faith as heroined out as it sounded. I really loved it. And, and uh, it was, it was, I noticed there was something weird about it. And I didn't, because I wasn't much of a experienced musician, I didn't know what it was. I can tell you what it is right now, though. Well, tell me. It was, <laughs> it was the sound of Eric Clapton not playing into all that, that you see back there, right? There's yeah. a, a half stack, a 6,900 watt half stack. That thing will kill you if you turn it up to like two. I mean, you, you'll hit a chord and you just fall right down on the ground, you know? So these guys would play through yeah. two or three of those things, two cabinets each, turn everything to 10. Uh, just insane. True warriors of, of rock and roll. But when this song starts, right, it's like, huh? It's like, like I'm expecting, you know, the Grand Canyon. And what I'm getting is just like a guitar coming out of a closet or something. I didn't know what that was. I just thought, why does the record sound so weird? Like, how come everything's so small and dry? Yeah, and and it and you know you have to understand I'm uh, I'm a kid who's been playing Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and The Doors and James Gang live with my high school band. Even though we're terrible, we're very enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, of course. We're winning Battle of the Bands. We're playing in the park, high school dances, you know, all this kind of stuff. We're even playing uh, bars back then. Um, and and so I know what it sounds like when you plug in to a, a number of amps and you turn it up. It's the sound of rock music. And, and you know, uh, I'm listening to Black Sabbath all day. So this comes on and I'm like, what is this? You know, <laughs> this is totally different. Um, I wish I had the amp here to show you. But so he's playing through Fender Champs. He's, you know, he's got these these amps that are this big. It's no, it's not 12 inch speakers, four to a cabinet. It's, you know, six and eight inch speakers. And uh, because it's, it's been three years of a heroin days and he's been, he took himself out of society. Then he's crawling back. And from what I've read about uh, Tom Dowd talking about this period is that he couldn't get Eric to plug into anything big. And he begged him, like, could you please plug into a Marshall or how about a bigger Fender or something? Sure, yeah. But he was, he just, you know, he was in this sort of meek mode. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, and so he insisted on playing through these detox. little amps. It's called, it's called detox. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. You know, um, he's still, I mean, they're still drinking like crazy, but they're, but he's not doing heroin. So um, now on the good side of it, of course, I'm just a young idiot. I don't I don't have any experience in my life. I don't know that he's on this journey to discover 
new stuff. I don't know that he's been listening to J.J. Kale. I don't know about the musicians in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the kind of stuff they play. I don't know any of that. I'm from Long Island, and I just drove across the country, yeah, yeah, yeah. stopped in the Utah Salt Flats, and and uh, went straight to Marin County. So it's exotic. I have to say, it's. I'm listening to it. I'm seeing my older siblings and their friends love it. And I'm wondering, like, well, what is it? What am I missing here that the older cats are, like, really getting into this, this shuffling stuff and this slide guitar? And, you know, it's it, it took me a while to, to find what he was tr- what he was aiming for. You know, uh, when you read his book, you really get a, a better understanding of his artistic process, whether, you know, it was hit and miss or whether it was totally intentional and, and he felt like he succeeded doesn't really matter. In the end, he made this document and he put it out and they toured behind it. And so it must have felt right to him at the time, you know. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. I, you know what? I, I, I do think that I do think it probably felt right for him because, you know, think about some of that older music that you had mentioned, especially the cream shit, which is dark. It's dark music. I mean, it's, you know, it's just even the, the chord choices that, like you said, the distortion, all of that. So, yes, he's still drinking. Yes, he's still doing cocaine. But he came off one of the hardest drugs you could ever possibly think of coming off, which is heroin. Mm. Three years being depressed. This is way lighthearted than anything else. Maybe maybe sound is is lighthearted but but not the subject matter because if you know and obviously i know you do um but for the listeners clapton uh was an illegitimate child a running theme through a lot of his music is about you know the the i don't want to say bastard child but but yeah it's like so motherless child it's still got some dark overtones because it's this tragic song that was inspired after Willie's mom died and his stepmother threw some caustic liquid in his face, which blinded him. So this is dark. So even though the music sounds, you know, a lot poppier, it's perfect for Marin County. (laughs) It's still got that post heroin depression. And as we know, like I said, Clapton has these feelings about his illegitimate birth because this isn't the first song uh, that I know about when this came up, I was like, Oh man, do you remember there was a song 
Because this is like after he did he did the Rush soundtrack and he won all the Grammys. The first shit he did after that, MTV used to play this like loop of uh, of his of his this commercial of him playing, and it's just I'm a motherless child, don't know right from wrong. <laughs> and so yeah, this is kind of his bag. I feel yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you this though because we're talking about people that inspired him. Uh, is it really true that you were inspired to learn guitar after Jimmy died? Oh, absolutely. Like you heard about it. Cause it, so yeah. tell me about it. Like, is, is it, tell me the story because it just, it sounds like you were in the middle of a game and you were like, all right, I gotta go. <laughs> it was, it was not as, uh, is that true? heroic. No. Um, I was a total Hendrix fanatic, but I wasn't yet a guitarist. I hadn't decided that I was going to be a musician in my life really. And, um, but I was on the football team. Uh, this is just at that age where still the little kids and the big kids can still play together before the little kids really got to save themselves and quit the team, right? That would be the ne- the year after that. That's when yeah. if you're going to be six foot eight and 300 pounds, it starts to happen, you know? <laughs> so um, I was all suited up. I was outside, standing outside the gym, Car Place High School, right in the middle of Nassau County. And... Uh, and um, a friend, a, a teammate comes out and he mentions that that guy you like, Jimi Hendrix, he's dead. I just found out because I went home for lunch or so he said something like that. And uh, I was devastated. I, mean, I was just totally devastated. I didn't see it coming. Again, I'm a little kid. I'm just not thinking grownups do that. You know, it's certainly not your icons, you know. And I didn't know how or anything like that. And he just kind of tossed it off. Like, 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 uh, he was, um, enjoying the fact that it was going to make me sad or something like that. And he just walked off. And so I just remember turning around and I went back into the gym. I went to the coach's office. He was still in there. And I said, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix has died. I'm quitting the team. I'm going to be a guitarist. And then I just walked into the, you know, the, the locker room took all my stuff off and, and went home. And, uh, and then more humorously that night over, you know, you can imagine an Italian family of seven having dinner loud and crazy. I just stood up at one point and said, I have an announcement. <laughs> I'm going to be a guitar player because Jimi Hendrix died. And it was, you know, first there was like that vacuum of silence and then the onslaught of everybody arguing about it. What? What's the matter with yeah, you? What's what Joe is going to What are you thinking about? I've never even seen you play guitar. You quit football? Yeah. And your brother's like, yeah, but he's he's missing blocks all the time. That's probably a good thing. And you're like, all right, I'll prove you wrong. Uh, so, but, you know, and then the hard work started because uh, <laughs> you had to learn how to when, play guitar. when I realized like, okay, how do I make that sound? And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking I was going to replace him. I was just thinking I needed to replace that beautiful magic in my life somehow. So I might as well play guitar. And, but then I realized I really sucked. I mean, really bad. I mean, beginners (laughs) all suck. We, it just sounds like dying cats and worse, you know, every time you try to do anything Yeah. and it hurt. And I just, you know, every day was so frustrating. Uh, but I, they encouraged me to just work really hard. It may have been because they thought he's not going to be good at anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so we might as well encourage him with the music, you know. I'd already terrorized them uh, practicing drums for three years. 
And uh, so maybe they thought, well, guitar, he can do it in a room. We can close the door and we won't hear it. Maybe that's a little quieter than the drums. And they're like, okay, maybe we can sell the drums, you know? So, uh, but then of course I got into a band within six months and uh, my parents let us rehearse in the basement, God bless them. And so we made noise for the next three or four years and they, they, you know, talked the cops down every time they showed up because the neighbors called. So they were very cool and very supportive. But that's how they got me through that incredible sucking age. <laughs> but the hardest thing was actually playing with Hendrix stuff because you really couldn't emulate it. You know, you could you could play along with the Dave Clark Five and kind of fit in, you know, and you could kind of do that with the Beatles and the Stones because they didn't focus on this sort of uh, musical excellence of, of a particular soloist. But when you go to play with a Hendrix record or a Cream record, you go like, oh my God, like l listen to the quality of that guitar work. And, and it's something else. It's not just strumming along, you know, time is on my side or something like that. It's something else. And, and as a young kid, it's, it could be, you know, uh, it could be like something that you imagine is was written down in a grimoire and and hidden in the the you know the Egyptian pyramids or something. It's just so foreign. You just go, well, how am I ever going to know how to play like that? What is it that makes uh, Eric Clapton quote "How High the Moon" in "Sunshine of Your Love"? I mean, why did he do that? It's just it's so brilliant. And of course, ninety nine percent of the audience never got it. <laughs> But he did it because he's an artist. That's a true artist at work. What what a hard grip of musicians that you're trying to to learn from. Dude, I was like, I thought I was having a hard time learning guitar, just learning like Nirvana songs. <laughs> so the idea of you like, all right, let me pick apart one of the hardest solos of all time. I mean, that is just, no wonder you're so good. I mean, you started, <laughs> you set the bar high. But so you know what? It's like I couldn't I couldn't cover uh Motherless Child, but I could probably cover the second track, which is Gimme Strength. This is because Clapton didn't write a lot of the songs on this album. Oh, hardly any. I, yeah. I think he did about three or four, uh, mm. if I'm not mistaken, but this is one of them. And this is uh here, actually, Peter, just play a little taste. Just a nice toe-tapping, bluesy, <laughs> weary prayer for help. Yeah. And it's just so beautiful, and the guitar work on it is just so incredible. So, like, give me your thoughts on this, like, then and now. Like, how are you feeling about it? I love the organ. I mean, yeah, that that the swirling Leslie and one of the great things about the record and the strangeness of the fact that the guitar is so teeny. You know, they've shrunk the godlike Eric Clapton sound, and they've they've located him like into one little spot over there and there. Is that all of a sudden you hear this stereo organ in the Leslie? You can really appreciate it. It's not crammed in next to a bunch of distorted guitars. And he sings quietly on everything, just about. And 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 this one is a perfect example of that. So you really hear the the beauty of the instrument. I love the organs and the Leslie rotating speakers are just 
you know, it's just like a God-given instrument, you know, it's just so beautiful sounding. Uh, but very often it's really hard to record unless everyone shuts up. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got this song and he's just like barely there. It sounds like he's playing an electric slide maybe and, and a dobro, uh, which is great on this record uh, when he plays it. And his slide playing, you know, I, here's a funny little thing that I noticed right away, which is I, I kind of knew from listening to other stories that – uh, at the time that he and George Harrison were very close. They had that weird love triangle with Harrison's uh, wife, Patty. And, um, but he was on, uh, he helped uh, George out on, on uh, Beatles songs. And so I, I kept thinking like, is that, is that George Harrison? Did he just like stop in and do that? Because the vibrato on the slide as for me, especially on this album is more uh, like George Harrison than what I heard him do before. And, and like, you know, it's like my little antennas went up like, hey, that doesn't sound like him. It sounds like he's listening to somebody else. And the, the first thing that came to my mind was that kind of vibrato that uh, uh, Harrison had, you know, very different from, let's say, Joe Walsh, which is a real slow, sexy vibrato kind of thing. Really like what I thought of as rock guitar slide technique. But this was different. This this had a country attitude. I'm looking at the personnel right now. There is no George Harrison. No. <laughs> uh, but it did specifically say Eric Clapton, lead guitars, vocal, and Dobro. It says Dobro, which that's the first time I've ever heard the word Dobro, and it just reminds me of a character from like a Harry Potter story. It's like, have you seen Dobro? <laughs> In Australia. No, it's it's a Dobro. It's a resonator guitar um, uh, you know, he would have, um, I'm guessing the first time I heard him play was on Blind Faith, uh, the album, uh, Can't Find My Way Home, you know, epic, just epic. Um, that's great. Beautiful recording. And, uh, but yes, it is, it's, it's so autobiographical. It's like, wow. I mean, as a kid, I didn't get it. You know, you hear it, you're 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, right? You're a teenager, you listen to that and you go, okay, that's like old person music, right? Because, you know, you're still all hormones all the time. Yeah, oh, for sure. Like, everything is about what do I want right now, you know? For and, sure. Uh, but yeah, like I say, you, as I'm listening to this music, this adult record, the first time and I'm hanging out with these adults, my sisters are nine years older than me, uh, I, I see that they're responding to it. Well, this is very, it's so accessible. I, I love slow blues. I also love slow blues with a slide guitar. So this is this right in my wheelhouse. And it's kind of like he started you off strong, a little uppity, and now he's bringing you into his world. He's dealing with a lot. You know, he's got Patty. He's off the junk, uh, but he's asking for help. And maybe this is his spiritual, like, like throwing it out to, to the Lord. Like, like, listen, yeah. help me get through this time. And, and you got to love that. Now, well, let me ask you this, because we're talking about, about getting help. You had Mick Jagger help you in your career. Mm. Uh, and he brought you along on one of his solo tours. And I just got to know, like, how did that come about? And also the follow up is, do you still keep in touch? Oh, <laughs> uh, boy, that period of my life was so interesting. Uh, late 87, we released Surfing with the Alien, just like the day after the market crashed, I think. And um, not that it mattered to me. 
I had no investments. Uh, I was just a, a broke musician. And I really thought that, you know, if once the label released this record that I'd be run out of town finally, you know, we just go back to teaching guitar and whatever. Um, but within a short period of time, by the time the beginning of the year starts, all of a sudden the, it's on the billboard chart. Surfing with the alien is like, I think it entered at 187, you know, almost as low as you can get, but it just never stopped going up. And it, 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 you know, it surprised me. I was very happy, but I just thought, oh, this can't be happening to me. And I'm out on a tour, very first tour, because the label says to me, you have to put a band together and go out on tour. And I said, you know, I've never done this before. I've never played instrumental music in front of an audience before. I'm just a like a Jimmy Page guy looking for the lead singer, you know? So, but they said, well, you got to support this thing. So we're out on tour for about two weeks, two or three weeks, uh, January, damn cold, playing two shows a night at clubs on the East Coast. And... Uh, losing money, thousands per week. I don't have any idea how I'm going to pay for any of this stuff. And uh, in one of the darkest moments, I get a call from one of my former managers who's gone back to working uh, at the Bill Graham Productions Group. And he said, I just got the craziest call. How would you like to audition for Mick Jagger? And uh, of course, I'm like, oh, no fucking way. You know, you just you, you're just messing with me. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, all right, Dave, whatever. But he says, no, no, this is this is so funny. Like, I'd never make this up. You know, like this is really happening. And so I was in Boston at the time, uh, just just a few hours away from New York City, which is where Mick and the band was. And they said, look, they're going to fly you there. Uh, you know, if you can get to the audition tomorrow, just do it. And we just laughed about it. Like, I'll do it and I'll tell you all about it and how I blow it and how yeah, funny yeah, yeah. it's going to be and all that. So, <laughs> so we, I go there and I do it, but of course it turns out great, you know, playing with a band is amazing. And Mick comes in and he's all like energy. He's just like totally Mick Jagger, just like you would imagine in your dreams. And he's super nice and cool. And he's like, man, I really want you to join the band. Wouldn't that be great? And uh, my response was, well, yeah, of course. Uh, and then I said to him, why don't you come down and jam with me at the bottom line tomorrow night? I just It just came out of my mouth. And I thought, you didn't just say that. You did. Right? Why did I invite him? Why did oh. I just say that? Just like, you know, exuberance uh, overrun. Yeah. And so, but of course, he said, OK, what time? And sure enough, the next night he shows up, totally blows the collective mind of the audience, you know. Uh, the bottom line is a teeny club, and we were doing, we had four sold-out shows over the two nights. Oh, teeny little stage, pole in the middle, you know, typical Manhattan club. But Mick just walks in, just like he's just like a regular guy, and he and I just told the audience, I remember, I said, I'm going to bring up a singer. I know this is kind of weird, you know, give him a break, and I didn't say who he was. He just ran up on stage. And of course, it was like this moment where people were looking like, what the, whoa, you know, and then that was amazing. We did Red House. It was just so cool. So he he was a very cool guy. And the, the audience was like, oh, that can't be Mick Jagger. That must be his brother, <laughs> Rick Jagger. That's Rick. gotta be Rick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had great times and he, uh, he was so good to me because when we we got out on tour. He realized what was happening with the album. He gave me a solo spot in the middle of the show to do like Satch Boogie and Midnight. And then yeah. with the second tour was Australia, New Zealand, and, and uh, we did a show in Jakarta. He, uh, he By that time, the, the record had 
passed his on the charts and it was just like, it's just stuck at like in the top 30 for, I don't know, six or seven weeks. And, um, so he, he would always come to me every week when he saw the new chart position and he'd say, whatever you need, just let me know. You need a room, you need someone to drive you to a radio station, whatever, uh, you know, just ask me. And because he knew this was the, this was the moment where you got to, you got to say yes to everything, you know, if, oh, if, when man, you get a hit I record. Oh, man, I love that. Yeah. So he, he's always been really great. He's been just a, oh. a great friend throughout the whole thing. <laughs> that is so great. You guys have, do you guys have a barbecue? You ever been invited over to one of his castles? No. You, yeah, because cause I have. And they're, they're I'm kidding. I oh, I'm sure you have. Yeah. I mean, you go like every Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? Or something like Nick, that. I, it's every Passover. <laughs> I run the, I get the Seder plate together. Oh, God, I wish. I wish. It's like. I mean, I'm just, I, dude. It's the coolest. I remember I saw, I saw Paul McCartney used to show up at the Hollywood Improv, and just seeing him was like I got butterflies. Uh-huh. So I couldn't imagine jamming with with such a legend. That's so great, dude. He was great. You know, he taught me a lot of things about performing. Because uh, you know, when you meet famous rock stars, you there's that moment where you just you're going like, oh, I hope this isn't a disappointing moment. You know, yeah. I hope they they're not assholes or something like that. But yeah. um, uh, he every night I was just like so shocked at the effort that he put into making the show the most memorable event for everybody in the audience. He just never let up. He just I never saw that. He, and he was just kind to everybody and he didn't have to be even when he would be mobbed. We'd go out, you know, in Manhattan to a restaurant or something like that. He just never went crazy on anybody. He was just always nice. So, uh, you know, that you at those moments, you really get to see the heart of the of the person, you know. Uh, so he always had a good heart all the time. You've heard it here. Mick Jagger's a mensch, everybody. He is a mensch. And Mick, if you're out there and you do do a Passover service, me and, and Joe are willing to come. Uh, next song uh, off the record, uh, Willie and the Hand Jive. Not going to lie, uh, good song, but I, I started skipping this one uh, over over some time. Not bad, but like I said, it's just out of everything on this record, it's just, it's fun, but it's not, it wasn't my favorite. Uh, but this is the second single that went to number 26. It's a slowed down version of Johnny Otis's 1958 Bo Diddley beat tune about a character similar to Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good, who mastered a dance that could be done sitting down. And the idea came after finding out about a venue in England that didn't allow dancing in the aisles so the kids would dance while seated. How, how dirty dancing of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, however, despite Johnny Otis's frustrated insistence that it isn't, it's long been misinterpreted to be about masturbation. Oh, I'm liking this song better and better. Peter, play a little bit about the hand job. It's a lot funnier uh, if you sing hand job. <laughs> hand job, hand job. Uh, it's a good song. What are your thoughts? Well, there's a, a couple of things that. It, first, I have to say that you know when, when I was a young guitar player starting out and really into the the early Eric Clapton, uh, 
you know, the one thing that attracted me to the music is it was the music of the day. It was the sound of the day and the rhythm of the day. And every generation needs their sound. But the last thing that I wanted to hear was anything from the 50s. I don't know why it was just, I think it's like Mother Nature's way of programming young people to push forward, not to look back. So they, you know, you go back to around the time you were born and you go, whatever that is, I don't like it. You know, I don't, don't give me any Elvis. I don't want to hear any Elvis. And you, as you get older, you start to look back and you go, hey, wait a minute, that stuff's really cool, you know. But when this came out, I was not into hearing anything that had its roots like Bo Diddley, deep in the 50s, you know, 50s yeah. kind of stuff like that. Just wasn't ready for it yet. I'm, just, I, you know, I'm listening to Sweet Leaf in the Morning by Black Sabbath. You know, it's like, so, uh, and and years go by and I start to get into it. I I see, okay, you know, you, an artist, they want to explore their roots. They want to share their roots with their art with their fans, and they want to interject something into it. And I started to really appreciate it. However, getting back into the album this year, I noticed technical things because I've made so many albums. And, and you know, you, I'm able to turn that part of me on, you know, that makes a record and sits there and just listens for clicks and pops and all kinds of problems because you, you need to do that when you're making records. Uh, what I did notice is that there's a phasing problem with the keyboard, with the organ. And I thought, the first time I heard it, I thought, that's not possible. Like, how did I not hear that for, I don't know how many decades, but sure enough, I tested it in a few different listening situations. And when that starts and you hear the, the, the organ playing the, uh, the bass part and then it stops, you realize, oh my God, there's a phasing issue going on here. And, um, goes to show you that technicalities like that don't really matter when it comes to people enjoying music. As record makers, it drives us crazy. And we spent thousands of dollars oh, I can chasing imagine. all kinds of audio demons because we think, you know, people will love us more if we take care of that problem. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the end, no, people like music because they like it and there's nothing you can do about it. And if they don't like it, you can't make them like it. So yep. that's uh, Glenn Johns once said to me uh, in the middle of a record, he says, uh, you know, Joseph, it's not your job to tell people what to like and what not to like. It's your job to play the guitar. So go out there and play your bloody guitar. That's what he said. Nice. That's my really bad Glenn Johns accent, by the way. I know, man. <laughs> I, trust me. It's because I'm, that was what was great. It was a fantastic accent. Uh, I can't agree with you more. I, I would never have noticed uh, that sound issue. I mean, and I'm listening to it on, on headphones, on all my speakers, and it, it's just, it, it's the reason being is like it's one of those songs that if it's catchy, you know, you just skiddly do with it. That's yeah, that's yeah. really what it is. It's and, and what's funny, though, about this record is that I can go from that song, which I'm just like, OK, to then you get get ready, which is not only uh, one of the few Clapton originals on it. But this is such a standout track for me. And mm -hmm. I love that he went from uh, hand jive to this because I just 
this is what's so great about doing this podcast and this example is is perfect is this that you you can go from one track and just be like yeah this is just not my bag and mm. then this comes on and you're like this is one of the greatest songs i've ever heard in my life <laughs> um before we play it i gotta give the shout out to the backing vocalist and co-writer yvonne elliman yeah. she uh got recognized uh by being in jesus christ superstar and she scored a bunch of hits in the 70s yeah, with yeah. if i can't have you which went to number nine. Oh, okay but what i love about what i love about this song so much is just that it's a duet but they're just stepping on each other's lines it's about having a last laugh at an old lover who is getting put through the same shit that they put you through there it is and the and yvonne has the best lines on this on this record or on this song uh peter play 126 i never leave it up run around busy out checking out the pictures and he you've got a lot of nerve fishing out of what you said waggling your piece of me ready 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 here's a man who's gonna break your this song is just straight New Orleans sex funk. This is a total departure than everything that we've already been listening to on this album. Yeah. <laughs> this is, again, uh, I, I have memories of just watching people dance to this and, and seeing its powerful effect on the audience. This is, you know, it's an interesting thing to talk about. And it comes up when I'm doing clinics because uh, when you talk about uh, trying to instruct people to how to play guitar and play music. Very often they, they get caught up in subtleties. Where do I put my finger? What size pick do you use? You know, uh, how fast can you do this against the metronome, that kind of stuff. And you have to like throw your hands up at some point and say, you realize that our job is to play music for people. That's actually the goal. Nobody will ever pay you, you know, buy tickets to see you go through an exercise and then turn the metronome one click higher and do it again. So, it, musicians have to, you know, get their priorities straight here. All the work we do is actually to create moving music to accompany people in their lives. And they need sexy music. They need music to help them commiserate and celebrate and all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of like a musician's job. So this is kind of like a, one of those songs that reminded me at the time, the lyrics were kind of going over my head and I didn't really focus in on it as, as a younger kid, but I'm just noticing, wow, that groove has an effect and I can relate to that. That, that sort of sexy groove is something I can relate to. Uh, and the sound of Yvonne's voice it was, it did say that it did send that message to me as a young, uh, 18 year old kid. And, um, I knew who she was at the time. So, um, I'd actually seen her, uh, where would it have been? And uh, I went to the theater wherever Jesus Christ Superstar was playing. Um, oh wow! But I can't remember the, na the what the name of the theater was in Manhattan at the time. But um, uh, but so that that effect is so important that you know it didn't bother me until later that. It, there should have been a solo, yes. like just a screaming solo, you know, the, the kind of solo, you know, that he would have excelled at, you know, yeah. and I was waiting for it. And it, uh, if you can play the end of the song, it's really humorous. It's like, if there was a video for it, it, it could be really comical, but the very end of the song is the shortest Eric Clapton solo ever recorded.
That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That is my favorite solo in the history of solos. (laughs) I I remember just thinking like, I mean, I could have gotten paid for that. I mean, I could have done that. It would be like, all right, thank you very much. What is that? $2 million. Thank you. I'm feeling for the song, man. Just a cock, cock. I love it. And it, I, I remember at the time, I was just thinking like, well, well, where's the rest of it? Yeah. <laughs> like, but, you know, again, young kid and, you know, records were made by grownups, you know, and I, and I wasn't in that club yet. So I, everything was like, well, why'd they do that? You know? Um, sure. But there was a lot, I mean, I was kind of used to it because uh, on the one hand, they did a lot of weird songs in Cream. They were very much into the sort of Dada art thing. So they would do these wacky things that were very British, deep humor that would, you know, go over the heads of everybody else around the world. But, um, uh, but, but so I I was just thinking, well, it must have something to do with that. That That's, there's some artistic reason why he plays two notes and then that's the end of the song. (laughs) You have no idea, dude, after we, we went through some of the mistakes in the previous song, I mean, honestly, Maybe they fucked up. Who knows? Maybe there was a solo and they just, just, you know, maybe Clapton played something so great and he said, I don't want to be that guy anymore. Or maybe, maybe he had diarrhea during the solo and he had to run out quickly. (laughs) So he hit one note and then he split. Maybe you have no idea what he had for lunch. Okay, listen, I'm making this up, people, but. We that could be true. No, there's, you know, (laughs) do you know, uh, what is it? Is it, um, is it Let It Be? What Whatever great Beatles song uh, where Ringo comes in late. And it's because they were tracking and he had to go to the loo, of course. British people go to the loo. And he's in the loo and he's just sitting there. And apparently he hears the band playing the song. And he's thinking, well, they've started without me. What what the hell's going on? Finishes up, runs into the studio, sits down, you know, and they kept it. I'm telling you. So your your theory not wrong. Your theory could be right. Just reverse. I didn't. I'm if, not right either. I'm not the reverse. I'm not right, and I'm not wrong. But you know, I'll let the I'll let the fleece army uh, make up their mind for that. But but what's funny <laughs> is then the next one is is like the hit among hits off this record. I shot the sheriff. Uh, Peter, play the intro. I shot the sheriff. All I can hear when I listen to this, uh, because we did this record uh, by EPMD not too long ago, uh, this all I hear is Strictly Business. Peter, play the intro to Strictly Business by EPMD. Both great, equally. Obviously... I Shot the Sheriff by Eric Clapton is far better. But this is the first single from the record. 
It's a cover of Bob Marley and the Whalers' 1973 song about defending himself against a policeman with a vengeance. And this is bigger than just a song, in my opinion, Joe, because, first of all, Clapton did not want to put this on the record. It was guitarist George Terry who had to talk Clapton into covering it, which worked out because this was his only song to go to number one and... Bigger than that, it helped popularize reggae music with mainstream rock audiences. This is the thing that propelled Bob Marley to that global domination of 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 being an artist uh, that he is. And it's such a good it's such a good cover of it. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I I was that audience. I was the the young kid at the time who heard it and thought, "What is that? It's such an undeniable groove." so different from everything a standout on the album first of all i mean that's you know when you're listening to an album and you're in this track the, this one comes on it's like wow you know it's like tight it's like everyone's like really playing there's no whispering in the microphone not at all <laughs> you know what i mean there's no there's like i don't want to play i don't want to play like everyone's playing what they want to play um i'm i wish i knew who was you know is it eric is it george who's playing all those rhythms, that's an interesting Ooh, I don't know. Uh, thing. You know, Eric's got amazing timing and, uh, but you, you don't, you don't think about him as a rhythm guitar player, but obviously he is, you know, but he, he is, but he's sort of, he's kind of, he's known for that big tone and, and, you know, his phrasing, uh, his great uh, lead playing and melody playing. Uh, but again, what happened to the solo section? I just remember this was a great song to jam to when I was a kid because he didn't play during the solo section. It's kind of like, again, this aesthetic that the whole album has is Eric saying, I don't want to be the guitar God. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, I don't want to do, you know, I mean, when people hate guitar players, they use all kind of words you know, histrionics and they, they, they grab these words that they like to throw out like spears at guitar players. It's all bullshit. <laughs> but this, in this particular case, they decided the groove was the message and that a solo maybe would have taken away from it somehow. No, I, you know what? I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. I think this song is, is he's honoring, you know, the, the original version by Bob Marley, you know, I, have you seen him do this live? Does he play a solo live when he does it? Uh, very. The last time I saw him live, he had um, uh, Doyle Brammel was playing with him. Um, he, who else was playing? He had uh, um, uh, Derek was playing with him that night. Um, uh, and Andy Fairweather Lowe. He had three other guitar players. So he was tossing solo sections around the band. He had three other guys playing guitar, you know. Um, Doyle that night was stellar. He was so great that night. Um, but uh, we're not talking about Doyle oh, right right now. <laughs> so, but I don't know. I'd, I, think, I think about iconic songs and just think of like, if we're talking about, well, let's say Comfortably Numb, without the guitar solo come on i mean it's it's a different song like, it's not it's yeah you'd be like what i'm sure in the studio they thought what should we do should we have the sax you know because they had a great sax player right or maybe we scream which is me and the 
and the female vocalists, we just wail on top of that. At some point, they decided, no, it's going to be a guitar solo, and it's going to be the, one of the most beautiful things you ever heard in your life. No, they just tried it, and it just was wow, you know? So I often think, like, I bet Tom Dowd was like, okay, it's Wednesday, uh, it's, uh, you know, two in the afternoon. Eric, how about that guitar solo? And, you know, for some reason, he said, nah, nah. Not into it, you know. He's like, my diarrhea is flaring up again. I can't do it. I'm God, sorry, dude. I had to make that uh, joke. I, I don't know, but <laughs> I just think he was, again, from reading the book, you know, and from, you know, from, you know, first of all, I, my approach to this is always I look at what people have given me, right? And I think Eric Clapton gave me so much for so many years as, you know, up to the point when this record comes out that I've, I've already cut him slack, like as much slack as he needs, because he just gave us like some of the greatest stuff ever. It's kind of part of my life. It's turned into part of my style. Uh, and so, yeah, if he wants to not play solos for a couple of records, that's cool with me. But I can't help observing it as a, as a record maker. I go back and I listen to it and I go, I bet they had a couple of really good arguments, as we always do when we're in the studio. You know, like someone says, you know, someone does a solo and, and your bass player says, man, that really sucks. You should not put that on the album and your feelings get hurt. And, you know, what's not to cut you off. What's the biggest argument you've gotten to in the studio to, you know, to get something that you see your vision. Have you had just a blowout that was like, I had to fight for this? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately it's, it was filmed. Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, we, we put out, uh, we, we, in, in 95, after a failed attempt to record what became my eponymous release that year, um, I, I brought in uh, Glenn Johns to try to salvage the album, to do something. And his idea was to throw me into a room with great musicians who just happened to have played with Eric Clapton, Andy Fairweather Lowe, and Nathan East, and Manu Keshe. Uh, and to see what would happen, like what what's going to happen to Joe when we throw him in the room and make him play all this stuff live. Now, up until then, I've, I've always very carefully laid out my albums and and overdubbed. And that's sort of part of my thing is is very carefully constructing the, you know, the well phrased melody and solos that tell an additional story to the in, to the rock instrumental. This these concepts are difficult to translate to people who get hired to come in and read a chart and just play because they think if there's, if nobody's singing that they can play whatever they want, there's, there's no bridge verse chorus. And I'm always telling people, no, this is a verse. This is a bridge. You can't play like that until we get to this part. And they're like, yeah, but there's no singing. Can I just like show my chops everywhere? So anyway, that argument moves into the section of this two week period. During this two week period, where we're supposed to get the Dayton and Ferris are showing up, the very famous husband and wife uh, documentary team, right? Um, things are happening outside the studio that are that are not good in life anyway. So uh, Glenn and I are already sort of slightly burdened, right? And then when I finally get there to uh, to record, uh, and it's the only day that that I'm there for them to film me into this thing because we couldn't have them there for the whole 10 days. We didn't have the money. So they just had two days, right, to come in. It, 
that day was probably the absolute worst where the band has decided they've checked out on Joe, you know, and they don't understand this song. They're tracking to existing tracks that were done uh, by uh, Eric Valentine, uh, who was an engineer and co-producer in the beginning part of the project. The band's not listening to it. So they're playing other parts of the song while I'm there on camera trying to play the melody, listening to where the song's really going. And at one point, we just have to stop, right? And I'm sitting down with Glenn and I'm saying, look, these guys, they're not paying attention anymore. They just totally, you know... They've checked out, and he's saying, "No, they've done it. They've, you've, they're actually succeeding." And it, it was like a total impasse. And eventually, their performance was not featured, <laughs> uh, you know, on the album because we couldn't get them all together. And it just by accident, Glenn's son comes into town on the last day, and he sets up a drum kit and he provides the drums for the track, and it kind of saves it, you know, and. Uh, it was a song called Luminous Flesh Giants. I was really proud of this particular piece too. And and uh, and so to see it like fall apart all because they just wouldn't respect the parts, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to give them credit, they gave me great stuff until that last day and then they sort of had enough, <laughs> which often happens, you know, when you're making a record. Oh, I, I can only imagine. But you got to fight. You got to fight for what you want. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Um, all right, so the next two tracks, um, I dig. Uh, I Can't Hold Out. It's a cover from Elmore Jones' 1960 version of Willie Dixon's song. Uh, great song. I want to play uh, the slide solo in this because it's so impressive. Peter, uh, play a little taste. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So what I like about this is, in my opinion, this is the closest thing on here to the type of like traditional slide solo that inspired him, you know? Like it's not, it's just, it's him sticking to the roots of the blues slide guitar. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, again, uh, taste is a big thing for for Eric. Um, I read this thing when I was young and, and it, I remember the first time I read it, I was scratching my head like, huh? And, but he said that... Um, in the in the sixties, he realized that he uh, what he really loved and how uneducated he felt about it, uh, and so he he holed up in an apartment with all of his favorite blues records, and that's all he listened to, you know, night and day. Yeah. To to specifically to develop good taste, and I just rem- <laughs> I remember thinking about that that uh, tuna fish commercial, right? What was that, Charlie? They don't want tunas with good taste. They want tunas that taste good, you know. Oh, yeah, so I that. at the time, this is a very old, stupid commercial from my childhood. But that's what I thought of first when I read this thing, and I kind of laughed. And then I thought, what the hell is he talking about? You've purposely only listened to music so that you can develop good taste, like you do pull-ups to increase your upper body strength. And I didn't understand it, you know, as a as a kid. I just didn't think that your thoughts or your routines would develop into personality traits. But that's what he was basically doing. He thought, wherever I am right now, creatively, I don't like it. So how do I get to be as cool as these people that I love? I'll listen to them 24 hours a day until I finally become like them. I start to hear like them. And so when, when I hear him playing slide like that, I'm thinking he's totally absorbed it. He's, you know, because it's easy to play slide, you know, it's just a bar and you slide it up and down the guitar and the guitar is pre-tuned. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's not like you're trying to play something by Alan Holdsworth or, you know, uh, something really difficult. So, uh, so, but the misstep that everybody makes, of course, is playing too much, is playing the inappropriate thing. What you're responding to is that you think that's the most appropriate thing. And I think that's what the rest of the world audience thought. They heard that. They went, that is a guy with good taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knows just how much to play to create the feeling and, and not to show off. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, so I wanted to ask you this because you're such a virtuoso. When have you just gotten lost in your guitar? Like when is it? Like, is there, is there a moment that, like, sticks out where you're like, this is, I'm just so connected to this instrument more than I've ever been in my life? Oh, every night on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I tell you, I know I do, even when I'm thinking I'm not aware of it, because we get to the end of every song on stage, and I, no matter how many set lists my tech puts on the ground, I don't know where I am. I don't know what song's next. And... I'm often looking at him and he's looking at me with a funny look on his face, shaking his head. Sometimes he's yelling out, you know, such boogie, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, oh that's yeah. right. That's where I am. <laughs> it's, it's traumatic. That's what it is. I just, it's cathartic for me to walk out on stage anyway, because I'm kind of a shy person. And, and, and so to get out there and then to let go is, is difficult. So I, I just get lost in in the playing, you know. It's not always good, but I I'm definitely lost. <laughs> no, I love it, and that's funny because that next song is about that. Uh, Please be with me. It's a love song, uh, I think. To Patty, could be about uh, Patty. Could be about how he misses heroin. We don't know. <laughs> but the next one after that, 
Let It Grow. This is an interesting song, and I'd love to get your take on it because this is the last of the three original songs on this record. Um, in my opinion, what I'm about to play, uh, I feel seems like Stairway to Heaven. Uh, Peter, play the outro around four minutes. It's got a very J.R. Tolkien feel to this song. It sounds mythical, and then that outro, uh, it just it it feels very Led Zeppelin. Your opinion? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is derivative. That's what they call it. This is uh, if it was a courtroom, everybody as it was with Led Zeppelin, everyone screams about prior art, and then they realize that wow, there's like a hundred songs that do use that descending line. It's a funny thing about music. Like at some point, somebody does something first and then collectively the world says, we're just going to copy that. Yeah. Sorry. You're like, you may have done it, but that's like so good. Like we're all going to do it. So every blues song, one, four, five, someone came up with that first. I don't know who that person is. We're, we're collectively sorry for them, but everyone's copied it. So, you know, reggae music, everybody has to copy whoever created the first one or your audience will not believe it's reggae music. So this is pop music, right? Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful song. The construction of it actually is really great. The verse, the, the going into the chorus, the whole major minor thing is really great. The guitar playing is beautiful. I love guitar parts that sound like they were written and played on a guitar. I just love that because I love the guitar. It's a goofy instrument. It's convoluted. It's difficult to keep in tune and everything. But when you when you hear something like that, those arpeggios picked, I feel the pain. I know that he had to clip his fingernails and, you know, and he struggled with the guitar and maybe they had to retune it for certain chords. That's, that's the problem with the guitar. But it's so rewarding when it goes well, like with Stairway to Heaven, that's a very difficult song to make it sound like butter. You know what I mean? It's uh, now, of course, Stairway to Heaven's got that unbelievable guitar solo. <laughs> it's just like scary, perfect, good. You know, on a Telecaster, incredible. Um, he avoids it here. I mean, the fr I remember hearing this, and I was thinking like Stairway to Heaven. Uh, uh, Time in a Bottle? Is that what it was called, yeah. Jim Croce? If I could have time in a bottle. Time in a bottle. You know, old man mustache, 70s it's, There was a music. lot of that going on. That's what my friend Karen Kilgariff called it. Old man, 70s mustache music. Mustache music. <laughs> I wish I had music. one right here, you know. I, I'd probably play it better, but... Um, yeah, but we then can cut right now and we can cut right now, Joe, pick this up in about seven months when you grow one <laughs> and we can finish this so we could fulfill your stash dreams. Uh, it's I don't know, but it is there is great playing. It is very Harrison like yeah. like I said earlier, this was one of those songs where I thought, hey, did George Harrison stop by, you know, yeah, it's very the studio Harrison in Miami yeah. that day and said, you know, hey, Eric, how about this? You know, <laughs> And, and, you know, and he said, well, you do it because that's a lot of work. That sounds like a lot of work. You know, I didn't get the feeling on this whole album that anytime they were put up with a challenge that equated to work, that they would like jump into it wholeheartedly. 
I got the feeling like, because there are so many songs that you hear end sort of casually, like no one's sure when it's supposed to end. They don't bother like writing the ending. You know yeah, a lot I mean? of so, fade outs, a lot of fade yeah, outs so, on this. And just things falling apart and it's great, you know, for, for us uh, music aficionados, we love to, it's like peering behind the curtain for a second, you know, to see how they do it. So I like the attraction to it. It makes it, it sort of brings you into their experience, which is a nice effect for an album. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, I didn't approach this record, uh, following the lyrics. I would, if I had been an adult when it came out, but because I was a kid and I was a young guitar player, I was just looking for stuff to enjoy physically and to understand so I could pick, learn it. You know what I mean? I was in that phase where I was just like learning everything. Um, and so I thought, well, he's probably singing about something important because he's like, you know, almost everything on the album, he's kind of moaning and whispering and crying. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so again, I'm 18 years old and I'm thinking like, do I really want to hear this old guy complaining? I mean, he's like a rock god and he gets to wear fur coats and play colorful SG guitars. And it's like, what's the problem? Live in a castle. Yeah. I'm, I'm stuck in Long Island. Like what's his problem? You know? So <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with Long Island, but you know, no, there's nothing wrong with Long Island, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. And, and, maybe it would have changed if there was that killer solo at the end. And I'm still wondering why. And I know that uh, I'm always in the process of making an album uh, and I'm, I'm sitting here in my studio outside my door. There's a big board with 12 song charts on them with various notes, like, you know, keyboard solo, guitar solo, combo solo, you know, we're always trying to decide in a song, like what, what does it need? And, you know, what's taboo? Don't do that. Or maybe we should do it, you know? So at some point, someone must have said like, Hey dude, that kind of sounds like stairway to heaven. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't go there, you know? All right. Moving on. Uh, steady rolling man. Uh, and what's so great about this record, once again, is like you go from a song that's got that J.R. Token feel and then you just get something like this. And it's just this funky cover, uh, a blues pioneer, Robert Johnson's 1937 song about hard work and perseverance while trying to love a cheating woman. And this part that I'm about to play might be my favorite part on the entire record. Uh, Peter, play the second verse. Just that key change, that little gang gang, that is so yeah, perfect. Yeah. And it also, and I want to play the solo too because this might be my favorite guitar work by Clapton on the record. Play a little bit of the solo, Peter.
I mean, what does this do to you? Because it's, it's just, to me, it's like the next two songs on this record, I'm just like dancing. I'm, I am just, I fell in love with this record because of how he closes it out. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's, it puts a smile on my face. There's the whole groove, the sound of it. I wish I knew if that was a, a, a phase 90 or a phase 100, you know, the effect on the guitar. It's yeah. just a little pedal that was, those orange pedals. I don't think I have one on the ground here, but... Um, Everyone was phase crazy, phase pedal crazy in the mid '70s. There, from Bee Gees, uh, you know, all the way down to Robin Trower. So, uh, I thought that was kind of kind of cool yeah. that he did that. You know, it was a, a just a little step of more Eric and and, uh, <sighs> but it's perfect. I mean, his phrasing is perfect, his timing is perfect, and you know, it's it's just great that it comes together like that. You almost feel like the Whenever I'm curious, like when was it done in the recording process? Did they, was that like one of the early ones or did they get to that late? It's, uh, you know, there needs to be uh, like a documentary done about the record. Maybe I tried to find it. I tried to find it on YouTube. They, it was not there. Um, I mean, I don't know when he recorded this, but I mean, I don't know if he structured it to put steady rolling man going right into mainline Florida because this mainline Florida has to be I've been doing this almost two years now Joe and when you get a song that gets in your soul uh I mean it's incredible I probably listened to mainline Florida 40 times over the last two days wow I, I love this song so much <laughs> um and what's so great is that you know when I put this when I put on mainline Florida I am just vibing to this and just in it I'm dancing around and connected and then I'm listening to it on Spotify and then the album ends and it goes onto like random and it plays Clapton's change the world, which is not mainline Florida. I'm going to show you the difference right now. Play a little taste from one of the greatest songs on the 500 albums list. uh, Mainline Florida. All right, now play a little bit of Change the World by Eric Clapton. The fuck are you doing, Spotify? <laughs> Not just the same artist, the same vibe, bro. Not saying Change the World is bad <laughs> at all, but it's but you're going from hot fire. Which mainline Florida, I'm telling you, man, this is my so far top five songs out of anything I've listened to on this list. And and wow. then you go, you know, change the world. Not saying it's bad <laughs> at all. Love you, Eric. Playlist rage. It's oh. a thing, you know. Dude, I had it, bro. <laughs> I had it. I mean, this this is like, what's it like? What's it like here in mainline Florida as an 18-year-old? Oh, well, it, it delivers. The riff comes in, you know really strong gets my uh, it feeds my uh, need uh, for guitar riffage you know it's got a lot of power to it i really you know the secret in my mind the secret ingredient are the background vocals when completely when the chorus comes in and you hear the women come in singing it's like wow 
right? Because he's during the verse again. It's Eric being very casual, quiet. He's singing kind of quietly, right? And uh, but then full voice vocals come in, and it just sounds great. It's one of those songs that I have no idea what they're talking about. Florida. <laughs> at some point, I lo- I looked at the the lyrics. They don't make any sense. So it's a it's kind of good because anybody can sing about it if they've ever been to Florida. They can sort of imagine. It's about their experience. It's the shittiest state. The way it hangs off the country like that. They've got all these stupid rules. That's I, that's how I my version of, of a Florida song would go. Nothing against Florida, but it's like change the world. It's just not my favorite. Uh, you know, it's they've got uh, Florida. I've been all over Florida. They've got some absolutely stunningly beautiful places there. And, uh, and it's a, it's a really diverse state. I have to say when we, you know, we tour a lot. And, and so after three plus decades of touring and you, and Florida is one of those states where we'll play maybe seven, eight, 10 shows. So we're going all over the place. And, uh, very often when you have states that are, that are very North and South, you get a lot of diversity in not only uh, the the way that the geography is and everything, but just the fact that you've got the Atlantic over here and and then um, the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf of Mexico on the other side. It's just two different worlds, and you got a horse country in the middle and gators. And I mean, again, coming from Long Island and even being out here in San Francisco for so many decades, when I go there, it's like wow, like you know, this is different. <laughs> but um, and I I know that. I know a, a lot of British people who, you know, they love the sun. If they can find the sun, they'll go to it. And to them, Florida is like amazing. So I, I see the the attraction here. And I, I, I could see where uh, even though this song was sort of brought uh, into the project uh, by the other guitarist, um, that uh, that he must have, re- that Eric must have responded to it. He must have known that, it was a good song that it had all the right things that would really bring the, the level uh, of energy up. You know, I don't know if he knew that it would be great for the background vocals or what part would be good, but um, it just, it just has all the elements. I think that you, you, as you listen to this album, you're kind of waiting for it. And, and it's kind of interesting that they put it at the end. At the end, at the end. And then you've got that incredible talk box guitar solo that they're playing during the playout. Peter, play a little bit of the, the talk box for me, bro. I mean... It's it's just it should be a bigger song in my opinion. Like I I I've had so much fun, Joe, over the last week listening to this, sending this song to so many of my friends that I know dig music that might not like be at this point in the in the podcast as we know from when we recorded, we always record a little bit earlier. So I'm just like, get ready for Mainline Florida, get ready for Mainline Florida, and it it's just the rest of the album in my opinion, Joe, could have just sucked. And if it ended with Mainline, deserves to be on the list. In my opinion, <laughs> why this this album, I Shot the Sheriff was bigger, but Mainline Florida, man, that this is what made me an Eric Clapton fan for the rest of my life. Wow, wow. Well, that says a lot. I mean, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, technically, uh, what he's doing there, slide guitar, 
through with the talk box. Have you ever played with a talk box? In my band, we've had we had uh, we had a, a lead violinist who was kind of like our lead guitarist, and he uh, we did talk box a couple times when we did like living on a prayer. So uh, I've never played it, but but dude did, and it's the coolest shit ever. Yeah, if you're listening to it. <laughs> yeah, but if you're the one doing it, it's <laughs> like going to the dentist and then trying to play music at the same time because you got this tube in your mouth. Yeah, and you're you know you just want to salivate, and then. The volume that's coming out of the tube into your mouth is basically rattling your fillings and, and vibrating your skull. And, and then you've got to go up to the microphone and you've got to vocalize or, you know, make word shapes or whatever it is you're trying to convey with your mouth. Wah, it's, wah, wah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not difficult, but it's complicated and it's kind of disgusting, especially if you do it like, 60 nights in a row and like someone's got to test it and they got to clean it and like you go up to do that part and you're like oh that smells like last night you know like (laughs) damn our talk box is gone now with coronavirus is that the end is is covid the end of talk that's it there's not enough purell in the world you're anti-talk box (laughs) you're anti-talk box you know here's the thing like this this is a funny thing this is a guitar player thing like because we're all buddies right right so we all pretty much know each other. And and you go, oh, like, oh, yeah, I noticed Steve just, you know, used this thing on his last record. I'll let him have that. You know, I, I won't use that, yeah. you know. And then a couple of records go by and you're like, ah, you know, I, I might be able to do something with that he didn't do. So that's my artistic license to, like, use that. And so the talk box thing went through that where every artist was like, oh, that's cool. But, like, that's, you know that belongs to Frampton or the, or, or that belongs to Joe Walsh. You can't just copy him. And then somebody comes along, you know, living on a prayer and they go, yeah, but I can do that too. You know? So there's a lot of that, that, that happens. But so I did it on one song, but the experience on the tour, both me and the tech were like, we're never doing that again, only because it's disgusting <laughs> to hell with that song. <laughs> it's like, I just, it's like far worse than harmonica, you know, because that that also is like, oh my Very god, juicy. It's one of the juiciest instruments. Yeah, because you got you got to breathe it in. You know what I mean? So whatever whatever's in there is getting deep down inside, and oh, it makes guitar playing seem like safe. You know. <laughs> I can't wait, Joe, until we get another song on our album where there's talk box. And I can just be like, no, not feeling it. This is the juiciest instrument. Your breath stinks. Your slobber puss. It's terrible. It's just, I don't think you do. We, we have these two beliefs. We, 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 we say F Paul Simon and now F talk boxes. And I'm for I'm pro F and both of them. Um, do you want to do some facts and we'll get out of here? Yeah, yeah, sure. What, what do you need? All right. Well, let me try to do fa- facts. Fra- I'm trying to do like a talk box. Facts, 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 facts. All right. <laughs> I tried. All right. The house at 461 Ocean Boulevard had to change its address after this album because it was constantly being visited by fans. It has since been rebuilt and had its address changed back. Yes. Wait. And I'm, now I'm going to sound stupid. 461 Ocean Boulevard is in Florida, right? This is a Florida address. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you this, what's your wildest fan story? Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, I don't know. I, I'll tell you what's the, it's on my mind. It doesn't really fit into your question that much, but, um, I, I, 
got to hang out with uh, Eric Clapton twice, right? Okay. The first the first time was a weird fan experience, and it, it sort of answers your question in a way, okay. because. Uh, my friend of mine was, uh, was a guitar dealer, was bringing him some guitars that he had requested, some really expensive, extremely vintage Fender Strats. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to, to come along to hang out with Eric and test these guitars out. And I just happened to have uh, given Eric a guitar a few months earlier that sold quite well in one of his auctions to raise money for his charity. So I thought, oh, yeah, great. And his tech... Uh, Lee said, oh, yeah, Eric would love to meet you. It'll be great, right? So we go to the gig. We're hanging out in the back, and Eric comes in, you know, hi, and this is Joe Satriani, and he goes, oh, yeah, hi. And he sits down. He starts playing the guitars, and he goes, okay, I'll take that one, that one, and, and forget about that one. And then he opens his computer, and he just totally ignores us. So we're standing there, like, for two minutes feeling really stupid, you know, like, okay, this is really weird. Like, does he do this to everybody? Like, did we piss him off? Like, what, what's the matter? So eventually uh, his handler says to him, okay, well, and he says it in a really weird way. He goes, okay, Eric, well, now Joe and Mike are going to be leaving and watching the show and waiting for Eric to respond to us. And, and Eric's, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And he, so we walk outside and my friend just goes up to Lee and goes, what the fuck was that? Well, why did he do that? You know, and I'm like, Mike, don't worry about it. Just forget about it. He's Eric Clapton, like before a show, whatever, you know. So I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. Hard shell developed years earlier. So, you know, I, I was cool <laughs> yeah. with it. Anyway, so Long Island in you. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> a couple of years, well, many years later, but a couple of years ago, uh, I was to uh, at the end of our European tour for Unstoppable Momentum. Uh, I was getting an award by uh, the, the Classic Rock Awards or something like that. And they asked me, they said, you're going to receive a, a reward uh, from Brian May. We'd also like you to present an award to Brian May and Queen. So I was like, yeah, great. So uh, just so happens the day before, we're, we wait in London. We do a show. Glenn Johns calls and says, oh, so happy you guys are in town. I'm making a record with Eric. Why don't you guys, you know, uh, stop by the studio? So I'm thinking, oh, do I want to go through that again? You know, it's like it's, I'm get ignored I'm, again. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm really happy just being a fan, you know. Uh, but this time it was totally different. This time I go into the studio. I'm sitting there waiting to be ignored. And of course, he's really sweet and he's nice and 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 everything's really cool. And I get to watch him record and we have lunch and everything's great. And and yeah, by the end of the day, I'm like, wow, like, I, you know, this has been like a fantastic day for a for a music fan, but what a strange, you know, flip <laughs> of circumstances, you know? Oh, I mean, thank God you had that second time to hang out with them or you just would have been like, you people would mention, Oh dude, I just heard that new Clapton stuff. And you'd be like, um, yeah, it's <laughs> just like sad and stuff. Yeah. Oh, I love you, Eric. He probably was, he probably had to check emails that first time. Who knows what he was going through. Yeah. 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 All right. Where yeah. are we? Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. 
Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. All right, so we're now we get now we get to find out really what happened with uh, Yvonne Elliman. So the female vocalist on this album, Yvonne Elliman, who had just come off the lead in the play and movie versions of Jesus Christ Superstar, and who a few years later would go on to have a number one disco era hit with If I Can't Have You from the Saturday Night Fever album, and she stayed with Clapton's band for five albums. Now, Joe... The yeah. list of guitar players that you have taught early on is just some of the most epic names I've ever seen in music. You got Kurt Hammett of Metallica, Larry Lalonde of Primus, David Bryson of Counting Crows, Alex Skolnick of Testament, Steve Vai, one of my personal favorites. He's played with Zappa, David Lee Roth, Whitesnake, and everybody. So I wanted to ask you this because you've had such an incredible, incredible career. Before you broke, did you have any like jealousy or resentment about any of your students' fame? Oh, no. You know, the thing is, is that in that little studio there, uh, secondhand guitars in Berkeley, California, it was like a team effort. Like it was, first of all, you have to understand it's such a long shot to succeed in the music business. And then you're a guitar player and then you like to play a lot. I mean, you know, you just, you feel like it's such a long shot. The only way where any of us are getting anywhere is if we all sort of like band together, we got to help each other. So that was the vibe. When people came in and they wanted lessons, I used to ask them, what's your goal? Do you just want to play music at the end of the day, take your mind off, you know, because I had race car drivers, school teachers, policemen, carpenters, whatever. They, they weren't interested in practicing. They just want to know how to play John Fogarty songs or something. So we had to get that straight. But then you'd have other guys like Kirk Hammett would come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm in this band, uh, Exodus, and, and uh, just got this, I'm going to audition for Metallica, you know, and I just want to be the greatest guitar player I could ever be. So how do I be great, you know? And he could already play, you know, but so it was just a question of me surrendering everything that I knew to him without affecting his style. And so you, and you, this, this, uh, this bond kind of gets created where you've, you, you're rooting for this guy to succeed. You know what I mean? And, uh, you, um, you, you, you realize that everything that you've come before him, even though I wasn't that much older, but just being 10 years older at that age group is a big gap, you know, that you see these, people as young, young students, young kids, and they need, and it's your responsibility to teach them everything, you know, teach them the ropes in and outside of guitar playing music business, whatever it might be. So, um, and they were so diverse. I mean, the names you mentioned, I mean, literally the same day, David Bryson would be there. Kevin Cadigan from third eye blind, uh, Alex Skolnick. I mean, these people were so different from each other. And then later in the day, Charlie Hunter would come in for lessons. I mean, the diversity in their personalities and their musical aspirations was so intense. But I think everybody had the same feeling, which is maybe one of us will make it. You know what I mean? So yeah. that yeah. that got you in the mood to to give everything that you had, you know? It's it's very much like being a stand-up comic, is that, you know, you start, we're all at this level. Some are better than others. And 
you form this group because you like you said you know how hard it is and you have to support each other and because if you don't have that support system then you're gonna bail you're gonna give up i would have quit if i didn't have my friend angelo bowers telling me no you've got this you can do it he had a bad set who cares you you go on to the next one i love that man and and it's like i mean just it's so cool too to be able to hear to see the list of the guys that studied and learned from you because, and and then to hear your music because it's all just, it gels. Like they took these great elements of what you taught them <laughs> and, and they've applied it to their music, man. It's so impressive, dude. So, but there had to have been one that you were like, all right, fuck that guy. I hope he doesn't. <laughs> you don't have, to, you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. Um, all right. Clapton's nickname Slowhand is rumored to have been given to him because he was in the Yardbirds and would break a string on stage and the audience would start to slow clap until he was finished replacing it. I love that. Wow. So much. So I, I had ask no this, idea. Uh, and I, I don't know if uh, you had no idea. I had no idea Slowhand? that that is, that is great. I just learned something. Uh, I assumed that what that was all about was that he liked playing slow. <laughs> and I took that to heart, which is so interesting because I thought, you know, very often when you're, when you're writing, practicing, or you're recording, you can't help but feel like you've got like, you know, like Steve Vai on your shoulder. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And you go like, boy, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. what would you do, Steve? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so you think like, and then even in, uh, let's say you're in the control room, you're doing solos or something, and someone says, yeah, play something more like, you know, Brian May. And then someone says, no, no, more like B.B. King, like blues. Or someone says, no, you should just go absolutely crazy. So it should be like total Jack White kind of crazy. You know, people just throwing stuff out and you have to, you know, you, you have to somehow stay focused on what it is that you want to do. But I, I have kept that idea of Eric Clapton's slow hand in my mind ever since I heard that. And now you've totally destroyed that for me. Thank you, Morty. That's Morty, dude. That's all Morty. Morty, the, Morty's the, the slow hand. He's the, he's the fast hand because he typed it. So I wanted to ask you this, being that he's having these, uh, he's had this, you know, moment of, of like the, the guitar string breaks, everybody's clapping. It's so awkward. What is your most awkward on stage moment? Oh, um, I'm pausing because of so many, um, <laughs> whichever one pops up first. Yeah. The, Unless you got a good well, one. definitely the most embarrassing there's awkward and then there's awkward, embarrassing. Right. So, um, you know, when you hit a wrong note, it, it, it happens. So, of you course, know, that do you're you, human. It's like a wound. It's like a like a uh, like a knife that somebody sticks in you, and then for the rest of the week, every show, you know, you you look down, you go like it's still there. The audience can see it, and I'm just I'm praying they forgive me. And look, I'm playing so much better tonight. Yeah, yeah, so you, yeah. you know, you just, it's you know, it's like a mental game. But um, this has got to be the funniest, which is uh, I. Uh, first of all, I was a big Alice Cooper fan when I was a kid. I, I got thrown out of school for imitating him with a snake during uh, a friend's uh, presentation to try to get elected as class president. And we went way <laughs> over the line with our presentation. And I terrorized the younger kids in the theater with this, my friend's boa. Um, it just, and I was, you know, shirtless with fake blood all over me. I mean, 
and uh, so, but I really loved. Uh, you went for it. I, I went yeah. for it. It was good, and and um, and Alice Cooper is a great guy, and 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 I've luckily have gotten to know him over the years. Uh, so anyway, but in the uh, '90s, early '90s, uh, I had this other deal to develop a band, and this guy was also this A&R guy was working with Alice Cooper for a record called Hey Stupid, and he got me to play on the record. I think I played four or five songs, you know, doing solos and stuff for Alice's record. And when he came to the local amphitheater uh, down on the peninsula, he invited me to come up and jam. And I had my good friend I'd rec- um, recommended for the lead slot uh, in the band. So it was like a friendly atmosphere, you know. And I show up and they've got the amp waiting for me in the guitar and it's the encore and Alice says, and now I want to bring up my good friend, Joe Satriani. Hey, everyone yells and I go running out. I plug in the guitar and it doesn't work. Oh, and it's like, you know, the first 10 seconds is like, oh, they'll fix it. It's just, you know, it's something and I'm still there. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, eventually Alice is like, dude, we got to start the song, you know? So they just start like, the I song. Got five snakes out here now. Yeah. <laughs> so I, there's like, you know, it's, it's worse than Spinal Tap because I'm in it. And there's, you know, whatever, a few yeah. thousand people. The cocoon won't open. The cocoon yeah. won't open. Outdoor amphitheater. There I am standing there with a guitar with nothing to do. The band is playing the song. Oh. There's three guys like, you know, unplugging, plugging. They can't get it to work. The song ends. I never played a note. Oh, God. And, you know, I just stood there like, this can't be happening. It's like, how does this happen? (laughs) And so when people say, hey, have you ever played with Alice Cooper? And I go, well, yeah, um, I don't know. (laughs) Sort of yes, sort of no. <laughs> that, uh, Joe, all you could do in that moment is just hold up the rock fingers up and just yeah. look around like, yeah, I don't even have to play on this. They're killing yeah. it so I, hard. T- I tell you, what makes it even more embarrassing to me is that I got kind of dressed up for it. Yeah, which, you did, of course. And I, and I and that day, after that night, I said, you know, rule number one, never get dressed up for shit like that ever again. Ever. Because if you look casual and it doesn't work, they're like, oh, it's okay. It was casual. He was just there. He wasn't meaning to play. But when you walk out with a leather jacket with silver holes and your hair is up in a samurai bun and I walked out with a chrome guitar, I mean, it was like, uh, no, they were expecting something. God bless this. This that was. I'm telling you, uh, Peter. We're clipping that for our audiogram because that's my favorite thing I've heard. Oh my God! All right, all right. Last question or last fact. This is an interesting one, um, and it has nothing to do with this record, but I just love it when I found it. Eric Clapton is a massive football fan, so much that he requested a foosball table to be placed in a special room on each leg of his 1995 North American tour. I love that. I love finding out when people are huge sports fans because I am. So my final question to you is what's your sport and who is your team? Oh, wow. I do not uh, subscribe to, uh, (laughs) to uh, that kind of thing. It's really funny. I know so many uh, good friends and lots of band members who are over the top with sports. I got to say, number one, Stuart Ham, amazing bass player. 
the the most over the top sports fanatic I have ever known and have ever had to tour with. Every second of every day is statistics about this, that, and the everything. I don't. He doesn't. I mean, football, baseball. Come on, he, he's like curling. He knows <laughs> statistics about curling. You know, what I mean? like, like he'll Freddie sit there and Johnson's talk about the it. Best sweeper, yeah, dude. And you and the funny thing is, is that you know, God bless him. You can get him going. Like I can say something like, you know, oh, goaltending my ass, you know, and he'll, he thinks I'm serious. He doesn't know that I don't follow any of this stuff, you know, but, um, but I got to say though, the, the me being associated with sports is a very interesting thing because uh, you, you, at some point you get asked to do anthems and, and I love playing the, the, the national anthem. Um, and, but because I'm not a total sports fanatic, I don't get mesmerized by the stadium and the players or anything like that. You know, to me, it's more like a gig. I, I have to play. There's going to be people. It's the same thing, no matter what gig you're doing. And, uh, so when I go in there, it's, I ha I can see and sense the vibe that is so different, like how weirdly superstitious baseball fans and players are. Oh, yeah. And then you go and you play a basketball game and nobody gives a damn about what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And there's just like, you could just go do it over there and get it over with as soon as possible. <laughs> in football, they want to like, they really want to see something happen, you know? And of course with football, you're in the middle of the field very often is freezing, you know? And, uh, yeah. there's, I've got so many funny stories. The funniest though, has got to be the fact that the only way that I got in the movie Moneyball was because of a massive screw up by the producer of the Oakland Ace uh, talent. They put me in front of, I was like middle of third baseline. I'm facing only about 10,000 people. And I, I, I've done this a lot. So I tell the producer, you look at me, I look at you. When you say go, I go. I'm not gonna play unless you tell me to go, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And I hear you know, everyone's talking about he should play, he should play. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the producer and I, I'm like, now, bam, go Joe, go. So I play the people I'm looking at, you know, this is the, you know, it's a big stadium, right? What is it? 60,000 yeah. people. So you can't look at everybody. So I'm looking at the 10,000 right in front of me. They're standing up. They're like this. I finished the anthem. As soon as I hit my last chord, I hear, ladies and gentlemen, please rise. Joe Satriani will play the national anthem. And wow. I'm thinking, I just finished, right? And I'm standing by my marshal, so it's like freaking loud, right? It's not like no one heard it. Yeah. And the people there are starting to sit down. They heard it too. So I, I look at them and I go like, well, should I just play it again? And they're like, no, no, no. And the roadie comes out and he turns off my amp and he starts dragging everything off. So, you know, I thought, well, that's really weird. So I leave stay for half of the game. I get home. People are calling me, emailing me. They're like, uh, what was the protest about? What were you, you know, we saw you storm off the field. What we, wow. what was the protest? And I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh man, people have gotten the wrong idea. I didn't mean to do it. And, and, and again, I told my manager, that's the last time I do an anthem. It's like, it's always so screwy. What's wrong with these people? You know? So anyway, years later, they're great. starting that movie Moneyball and the produce and the, the director, I guess, says, well, who played the anthem that night? And someone says, well, believe it or not, that was this guy, Joe Satriani. And it kind of went, you know, 
It got it got screwy the first time. They invited him back for the real beginning of the season because they felt so bad, and it was true. I got a call from the A's after the 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 debacle of the first one, and they said, yeah. we totally screwed up. We're so sorry. It was a preseason game. Come back for the start of the season. So I did go back. I played it. Everything was great. You know, fly over the whole thing. Anyway, that's how I wound up in the movie because <laughs> I got invited back for that particular game, and that was the first game, you know, around that whole thing, the whole Moneyball vibe, you know? Yeah. And I just want to imagine that there's people still in this world. They're like, dude, I mean, I didn't know Satriani was like rage against the machine. Jeez Louise, this dude, he's fighting over political prisoners. Yeah. Ma- like, I, I mean, didn't hear anybody. They probably, maybe they thought it was just all sports related. Like, you know, I had something against Jeter or something. I don't know who was playing at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't follow yeah, yeah. it, but you know, it's just, <laughs> but I got to say That's when you great. do the, when you do the anthems, one of the craziest things is you get to talk to these athletes who are absolutely amazing. They're just, yeah, they are amazing. I mean, we all know basketball players will just freak you out if you ever get a chance to be close to them, you know? Yeah. They're so tall. They're so athletic. And these days are really strong. But uh, just in general, you just forget about it when you're looking out, you know, on your phone or your television or something. But when you're face to face with these athletes, you realize just how amazing they are and, and just the physical perfection that they've, they've attained. And, and you often, th- I, I often think like I'm some kind of weird subhuman. They must think I crawled out of a cave somewhere with a guitar, you know, <laughs> because, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm look I'm talking to them like that. Oh, hi. You know, and they're looking way down at me. Like, who is this little thing, you know, <laughs> who makes all those crazy noises with his guitar, you know? <laughs> Well, you are you are amazing. You are amazing, buddy. This was I, I'm so happy that that you were able to come and sit in with us and be a guest to talk about Clapton because your love for him and your knowledge about like I don't think we've ever had a guest that just was could break down the exact the the pedal they're using and the, the, I mean, dude, you made me even a bigger fan of Clapton than I am. Great, I really great, appreciate it. This was so much fun, buddy. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm so glad you're talking about Eric Clapton and his amazing musicianship so this has been great what did i tell you what did i tell you the one and only joe satriani go pick up his new album shapeshifting came out in april it's incredible find joe on twitter at chicken foot joe find him on instagram at joe satriani and for all things joe go to his website satriani.com now We just listened to Eric Clapton from 1964. This week, our music director, Matt Penfield, chose the Matt O'Ree Band. They're a blues band from the Jersey Shore who got a nod from Eric Clapton when Matt won a guitar playing contest hosted by B.B. King and John Mayer. Bruce Springsteen was such a fan that he played in the band's latest album, Brotherhood, along with legendary Stax Volt guitarist, Steve Kroppa. They've toured with Bruce and Bon Jovi and many others, and they got their latest single, Inspired by Clapton, Through Time with You. And you can hear it right now. Also, you can find all the links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you want your music on the 500, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com and make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you 
in the subject line. Next week is Bob Dylan week. We go deep into his 1997 album, Time Out of Mind, which won Album of the Year over OK Computer by Radiohead. Are you fucking kidding me? Man, this is going to be, this better not be Spoogle. That'd be Doogle. Got some homework to do. Listen to the album. Stay fleecy. Doogle, doogle. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Next Chapter Podcasts.